Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Norma was diagnosed with terminal metastatic esophageal cancer in the summer of 2020. Upon hearing her dire diagnosis, she immediately decided to start streaming her worst experiences with cancer while wrapping it in her greatest love, pinball. She gives weekly health updates, provides cancer information, and flips her favorite pinball machines from her Florida home. Norma, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Well, thank you, Andrea. I'm glad to be here. I'm very curious about the pinball, so I got to make sure I circle back to it. (laughs) First, tell us about the diagnosis. It's fairly recent. Take us back to what was going on a year ago. Right. We'll get right to the right to the end part here. I have adenocarcinoma at the gastroesophageal junction. It's metastasized to my liver. And it also has been threatening my right lung in the past, although I think we may have gotten that. Doesn't appear to be going anywhere else right now. I am stage four. They've told me that I'm terminal. And they told me a year ago that I had between six months and two years to live. So one could argue I'm at the halfway mark, but I don't feel that way right now. I'm feeling actually pretty okay. In January of 2020, I really wasn't feeling that okay. A strange thing happened. I happened to be at a pinball tournament where they ordered a whole bunch of pizza pies and I love pizza. But I remember my brain telling me I wanted to eat, but I really wasn't able to eat that much. I ate probably most of one slice and then I stopped and my stomach just felt inexplicably full. And I felt a little bit uneasy in my stomach and I just couldn't explain it. I turned to my friend who was running the tournament and I said, this is really strange. I don't understand why I'm feeling this way. And, you know, he's very big into nutrition. He's a world champion jet skier and everything. So I asked him nutrition questions and he just said, well, you know, maybe you're not getting enough protein or you need to watch eating certain types of foods. But as the days went on, and a couple of weeks went on, nothing was really changing. I was starting to have a lot of heartburn at night in particular. It would wake me up out of sleep. And I never had that before. So I went to a family doctor at the end of February, and she thought that I had the makings of gastroesophageal reflux disease, you know, GERD, GERD. GERD. Mm -hmm. My parents have it. And my sister's had some episodes with it, but I'm like, well, I don't really feel like that's the thing, but she said, let me prescribe you some prescription, prescription strength antacids, go home and take them, take them for six weeks or so. So of course that was a long period of trial and error as I went on first, the one major, you know, Meprazole, then the other one, which whose name escapes me, I went on the other one and I was feeling various degrees of improvement, but another bad thing was happening. I was, I was vomiting at least once a week at dinner. I would sit down to eat. I would take a, probably about four or five bites of something. 
And just the smell of the food and just having the food in me was enough to make me throw up. And I started to worry that I was developing an eating disorder. And I thought, this is terrible. I, especially in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak, I'm like, I'll never get the medical attention I need. And I don't know what's really going on here. So I got referred to gastroenterologist and he did an endoscopy. I woke up from the endoscopy and I, the gastroenterologist is wearing a mask and I looked at him and he said, I took a biopsy of something I saw there. And I said, does it look bad? And I looked in his eyes, which is all I could see. And I saw fear in his eyes. And I thought to myself, this can't be good. He just said, let's wait for the results of the biopsy. But as I later learned, any idiot could have told, found out that I had stage four esophageal cancer. Even, even I could have figured out that I had cancer and I know nothing about what these diagrams look like and these photographs. So he referred me to the University of Miami. Um, University of Miami, of course, they have a lot of clinical trials. It's a few hours away from my home. Went down there, met with an oncologist down there. He laid me down on the table. He started pressing on my abdomen and he said, I think you might have liver cancer too. I said, oh, that wouldn't be good, would it? And he shook his head no. I said, that would be fatal, wouldn't it? And he nodded his head yes. And I guess at some level, I should have been prepared to hear something like that. But it was a very strange moment. I didn't cry or anything like that. But I I remember hearing it and I remember saying to myself, so this is it. And he sent me downstairs for a blood test and that in the elevator. And when I was sitting in the waiting room, waiting for the blood test, I was all by myself in this giant hallway. That was when it really, that was when mortality really hit me. I said to myself, now I have to tell my husband and my parents that they're telling me that I'm going to die and they're not going to be ready to hear that. My sister too, my sister is already a breast cancer survivor. We'll talk about her later. So I thought, to, and my grandmother died of breast cancer and there's been other cancer in our family, just other aunts and uncles and stuff. But I thought, eh, this isn't gonna get me. I'm special, I'm different. But I can remember in the weeks afterward, thinking to myself, let me wind back and just say that whole conversation with my husband was difficult. The Zoom meeting that I had with my parents and my sister, complete with a PowerPoint presentation, mind you, was also very challenging. Wait, um, you did a PowerPoint? Yes, because <laughs> I showed, I had some pictures I wanted to show them and I wanted, because I just didn't want them to say things like, are they really sure? Yeah, they're, they're really sure. And I read Background them, and project management? Yeah, I do actually. So <laughs> I worked in I worked in IT for about twenty years. There and you I've go. done a lot of different other types of careers, including publishing and other things. My career is not the focus here, but I mean, I felt like I had to put the questions to rest. Like, no, no, I believe them. I know they're they know what they're talking about, and they asked me how long, and I told them, and then probably, well, the first thought that went through my mind is, do I really want to deal with this? Do I? Do I want to wait for this to get me? Do I want to take another way out? Those thoughts came and went pretty quickly, but I think they're natural for anybody. I don't advise that anybody jump the gun like that. You need to wait and see what technology can do for you. And I, I chose to wait. 
But I remember about 48 hours after my diagnosis, I remember not feeling that great because I started to go downhill pretty quickly from the diagnosis, just health-wise in general. And I remember saying to, to everybody in my life, you know what I really want to do? I have all these pinball machines. I have six pinball machines in my house. And I said, uh, I think I want to stream pinball. I want to stream it over the internet. And I want to talk about cancer. It's only going to cost about $1,000 to get the equipment set up. And they're thinking to themselves, they just told you you have how long to live and you want to stream pinball. Yeah, this is a great life choice for you. Okay, oh, did we'll anyone help, say we'll that you. to you? <laughs> no, no, but I knew they were thinking it. They thought, I, they thought I was totally out of my mind. They're thinking anything you want to do, travel around the world or anything like that. Well, I definitely wasn't up for that. I didn't, my health was in terrible shape for months. I said, but no matter how much time I have left, I want to make sure I connect with people. There were a lot of people in my life that didn't know my diagnosis. I figured this will be a great communication vehicle. There's chat involved with streaming so they can ask me questions real time, but I'm sure on everybody's minds, we'll get this over with. We'll just let everybody know all at once. And so that was another motivation. And so I did that. And the couple of months that followed were really, really downhill months. They, they, I think my doctors didn't think I was going to live to see Thanksgiving or Christmas, but I did. I started chemotherapy almost right away. I was in the hospital right away after after getting this diagnosis, because my first chemo treatment sent me to the hospital, I thought to myself, this is a bad start for chemo. When the first treatment sent you to the hospital, I had terrible edema. I ended up passing about 40 pounds of fluid in five days, sweating and, and oh, urinating. My. I thought to myself, this isn't living. I, if I can get home and even start doing this stream, this will be a miracle. And I would get home and the first thing I wanted to do was open the boxes and start taking the equipment out and start building things. But I didn't have enough energy to open more than one box a day. And there were about a dozen of them just to open the boxes, just to see what was inside to make sure I was shipped the right stuff. I had no energy. I couldn't make it from the living room to the bedroom without sitting down. I thought to myself, this, I did this too late was the thing I was thinking. But miraculously, chemo started to take hold. I was on the full Fox 6 treatment there, which a lot of your viewers, listeners are probably familiar with. That treatment is a biweekly treatment, and it involves, uh, you know, fluoroacyl, which I despise, mm-hmm. uh, leucovorin, and uh, of course, anoxaloplatin. An and I also got Herceptin too, because thankfully, my cancer was, uh, I believe, HER2 positive. So I was good. So they, they gave me that too. And that was good. They checked for that marker. I, I don't know why they checked for it, but they did. And that worked out pretty good because I started to feel better after about a month. I started to feel a little better, a little better. I made it to Thanksgiving. I made it to Christmas. I made it to New Year's. You know, these were my milestones. Can I make it to my birthday? I made it to my birthday. It was just a matter of, you know, I felt like I was just running checkpoints, but I was happy to do so. And I'm like, and I'm streaming every week and people are asking me, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm feeling a little better. I'm still feeling very tired. And a lot of my early streams were kind of downers because I was talking a lot about how tired I was, but I would still play and I would still get high scores and, <laughs> and I would keep people entertained somehow. And people were starting to send me things, you know, they, they would, they would send me things. They'd send me cards and notes and I filled an entire artist's scrapbook full. I mean, it's full. I have started a second one with all the things that people have sent me. One of my, my parents, uh, my parents' greatest friends, Dale and Larry, they 
they send me a greeting card every week. They've sent me probably about 50 or 60 greeting cards. So half the book is them. You know, so and I've got one sitting right here. So and I'll just share with the stream next week. And I uh, people care. They one of my viewers made me a little doll that almost looks like a gnome that's supposed to look like me. And and she's my my mythical co-host. And I I gave her a voice with Microsoft Word and she talks and things. <laughs> that's and awesome. Because we just try to make it fun, you know, we try to get keep it entertaining. Cause for me, having something to do gives me a purpose. It keeps me going. And I think that's the hardest thing for some cancer patients. I told people, I'm not going to sit here and watch the prices right for the rest of my life. I've got to do something. If I had chosen that path, I would have been dead already. I wouldn't have made it because I wouldn't have seen a purpose and I wouldn't have seen how much people cared about me. And the people really have cared. There was a tournament to raise money for cancer and they put my name on the tournament. And this other place where I have done streaming of pinball, they named their broadcast area after me. Another streamer went out and talked to other pinball streamers and got them all to donate things to make a giant quilt. And she sent the quilt to me. So I'm never far from people who I know care about my outcome. It's more like, we don't pity you. We care about your outcome. We don't want you to go. And I think having somebody in your life tell you, somebody that's not your family, having somebody tell you over and over again, I don't want you to go. I want you here. I can't wait to see you again. And just giving you the hope of what are you going to do next week on the stream? You know, what's going to happen next? What machine are you going to play? Very forward thinking. That's really what it's about. I think that's what people have done for me. And I've been very grateful for that. Well, Norma, I want to circle back. Tell us where this love of pinball came from, because it definitely was really striking in your bio. I was like, oh my gosh. So given how this community has rallied around you, but actually take us back to where did this start? Why pinball? So pinball has been the big constant really in my entire life. I mean, my dad really taught me to play. We went to a small amusement park near my home. I must've been about seven at the time. And I loved math. And this is way back I'm not a spring chicken. And back in the old days, they didn't have electronic scoreboards. They were all the sort of the, the manual score reels that would kind of go zero, one through nine and then roll over and stuff. So the number values were low when I was learning my numbers and, and I would kind of play the game. And I, of course, I loved watching the ball move around, but I would also be like saying, I think my score is going to be this because I'd like try to get ahead of a bonus counter or something. And I said, my score is going to be 12,150 or something like that. And I would, it allowed me to practice math, which I love numbers and everything. So I, it tied a couple of things together once again. And I just grew to love the game because it was just something I was good at. And I spent a lot of time alone. I really didn't have many friends growing up, but it was always something I could do by myself. And even as a young adult, just didn't date very much. And was kind of a loner for many years. I'm married now, but you know, really I had a lot of free time on my hands, especially on weekends. And I would just go to the arcade and get lost in what was going on in the machine because it would force me to focus and I could gave me something to compete against. So I just kept going and I started playing competitive pinball about seven or eight years ago. Although I had watched competitive pinball for many years and I made friends down here in Florida who compete in pinball. 
And I started discovering on a platform called Twitch at twitch.tv, which uh, is an Amazon-owned platform where you see a lot of people stream things like League of Legends and Fortnite and all yeah. these. It's where all the kiddies hang out and they watch their a lot of gamers. Favorite, you know, all the gamers and they're usually <laughs> playing video games, but there right. are other things on there. So some people are fishing and some people are climbing mountains or walking through Tokyo or riding a bicycle through New York City. Or and some people are playing physical games like like billiards or darts, and some people are playing pinball. So I discovered those people and I started just watching them, looking for tips, but also looking for some connections, but really wasn't into it a couple of years ago. But when I found myself with so much time on my hands because I had to leave my job due to my illness, then I had to really start connecting with somebody. And chatting was probably the easiest way to do that because you get the instant gratification. You know, you say hello, somebody types hello back and you don't feel so alone. Uh, my husband would be at work and I would just sit here in the house and I wasn't healthy enough to leave. Mm. And especially with the coronavirus too, I was thinking yeah. if I leave, I might die. So I started getting focused on that. And then from there, I started thinking, gee, you know, I should do this and competed in some tournaments. And I won a very high profile women's tournament in, in Florida. And I, I, I just, I've done well. And I'm one of I'm probably the best female player in the state of Florida and, and well-known for that. It's been a constant for me because I could always go back and find some happiness. And I thought to myself, in this dire time in my life, what's left that really gives me happiness? Work? I can't do work. I can't work. I'm technically disabled. My, my doctor said I'm fully disabled, so I can't work. Can I see people? Not with the COVID being what it was a year ago. Yeah. I couldn't let anybody in the house. They might infect me, no, no vaccines, then I might die. So all I really had was virtual friends and talking to other people and being present with them, realizing they were going through some of the same things and that they couldn't leave their homes. And yeah. some of them were working from home and they couldn't see their friends. And so we had a, a bond there and it just occupied a lot of time. <laughs> Let me ask you, and I've never, yeah. I can easily say, I've never asked this question before. What's your favorite pinball machine? Oh, no. And why? <laughs> I got asked this on my last podcast that I did. I, I don't really have a favorite. I, I will play anything. I, I kidded them on the last podcast. If you walk by a little gumball machine where it's like a clown face and there's two flippers and the gumball comes out, if you hit the gumball in the hole, you get the gumball. I would play that. <laughs> so I would play anything with flippers and a plunger and a ball. It doesn't really matter because I can find some love in there. And my first thought in playing it is always like, oh, this game, I can beat this game. I can yeah. beat this game. I can You're beat competitive. This game. Yeah. Well, I'm very, I've always been a very competitive person. I almost think to some degree you need that mindset when you're dealing with cancer to you. I don't consider cancer a war though. I don't consider it a battle. Because if it's a war or a battle, you can sit around a giant map and you can do plot points and say, we're going to move the armies here and there. But all I do is show up to the doctor's office and they give me medicine and then we test from time to time and they go, did it work? And I'm like, that's not really a war. That's a, a science experiment. And so I don't consider this a cancer battle, but I have always considered it a journey. And my, my stream is called Pinball and Cancer, Two Journeys both of the journeys, pinball being a very long journey, about 45 years and cancer being a year long journey. That's still going on. Mm -hmm. They're both still going on. I can still play even though oxaloplatin took all the sensation in my fingertips. So 
If I'm neuropathy. flipping flippers, I have you know, the neuropathy and, yeah. and also my legs. So half the time I'm, I'm looking like I'm tripping over and I know where my fingers are sometimes, but I've lost games because I thought my fingers were on the flipper buttons and they weren't because I can't feel buttons. I can't, I can't touch certain things. If, even if I touch my husband, touch him with my fingertips or something, it doesn't, I have to touch him with my whole hand in order to touch him with my hands. I can't feel it. And I've been off the oxaloplatin. They changed it. So now I'm on full theory. I've been on that for a week, which is, involves a drug called Irinotecan. We're just trying something different because I was in the hospital a month ago because I had internal bleeding. And if I hadn't gotten that taken care of, I probably could have died of that. Also found out I have portal vein thrombosis and I could have died of that. So all the different ways I could have died, I, but I didn't die, you know? So, uh, so I just keep going and it's like, I didn't die yet. This is good, you know, which means there's still a chance that science is going to catch up with my illness and they're going to find something magical. And yes, I probably won't get the sensation in my fingertips back because it's been about nine months since they took me off the, the oxaloplatin and it's not coming back. Well, at least I got my tongue back and, you know, that was really important to me because it was affecting my tongue. I got that yeah. back, but I didn't get my fingers back all the way and I didn't get my feet back all the way, but I can drive, I can touch things. I, I use my eyes when I'm touching to know what I'm holding or not holding. I can compensate. And as long as I can compensate for my illness, I think I can deal with it. What was your worst moment since your diagnosis? Well, the worst moment probably was sitting in that waiting room at the University of Miami after after they told me, because there was nobody there. My parents drove me there, but of course this was coronavirus times and they wouldn't let them into the hospital to be with me or sit in the office with me or anything. So I, I did a lot of early doctor appointments by myself and a lot of early chemo appointments. And I made a lot of very key decisions about my health by myself, which I do not recommend. You That's need hard. somebody in your corner to assist you. But many times I had to make snap decisions and there was nobody there to do it with me. And that was frightening. So being in that hospital, waiting for the blood test where it hit me, they just told me upstairs there, I'm going to die. And then also being in all these situations where I'm making basically life or death decisions. And I'm going, boy, both these paths look good. I hope I pick the right one. I picked the right one over and over. And I think God has something to do with that. And I believe I've been led there and I'm I just keep leaning back on that. Just, okay, it's going to happen the way God intends. So I'm just going with it. What about your best moment? I think when I got that quilt that everybody made for me, that, that was awesome. And I showed that on the stream and I cried a little bit because I thought this is awesome. I have a clip of it on my, uh, on my Twitch channel, you know, of showing that and everything. And I, I just thought that was it was so altruistic, I think, really. I, she didn't have to do all that. She spent all that money herself. She, her stream is about quilting and she plays pinball. She's just getting into it. And she would come and watch me play on my stream and I would watch her do quilting. And the fact that she went behind my back even, which was hard because I was looking at everybody else's streams, but she was <laughs> following behind me and it's like, oh, Norma's not there. Okay, quick. I need to ask you a question. Are you willing to send a t-shirt to me so that we, I can make a quilt? And she kept this a secret for probably about two plus months until I went to her stream one day and I saw she was making something and she kind of asked people in the room, in the chat room, like, should, should we tell her now? 
tell me what, <laughs> you know, well, we're <laughs> making you a quilt. Oh my God, you're doing what? And then she sent it to me, give me your address. And it was just amazing. It was the greatest gift I've ever received because oh. it was made with so much love yeah. from people that a year before I did not know. I never knew them. I've never met in person, any of them. And they did all that for me. And that was just stunning. It showed me the best of human nature, which I think I really needed in that moment. I'm just going to take my victory laps around this world. I'm just going to make the best out of X amount of time I have left. And that's just going to be it. I, I say to myself, sometimes it's almost liberating that they've told me this. Because if I hadn't gone to the doctor... I probably would have just fallen over dead one day. And oh yeah. Then people would have said, Oh my gosh, did you know she had cancer? No. No, I didn't. My husband, I would hate for my husband to have to be staring there open mouthed at the doctors. And I had no idea she had cancer. Well, apparently she didn't either. Yeah. And yet it would be just stunning. And my husband has been a he's been there for me throughout all of this. And I just love him so much. He calls me sweet pea. <laughs> and my, so whenever I get a high score on a pinball machine, I put a PEA and I do that to make sure that he can see that I, that I did something good. Like, Hey, I got a high score. <laughs> does what, he like pinballs as much as you do? Uh, he, he does his best. I'm telling <laughs> you, he's better at nudging than he thinks he is. Cause he'll listen to this. Hey, he's, he should just keep working on it. And he, <laughs> he's getting better, but we don't play that much together. He gets a little frustrated because it's like, okay, well, I'll go sit in the other room while you're on ball one or something, right? You know, <laughs> you compete with your spouse. Like that doesn't, it's not well, usually a positive hard. thing. Yeah. It can be difficult. I, I do like to do some things together with him, which is we like to go to the beach, which probably kills the second half of your, <laughs> oh, <laughs> not, your, your no. questionnaire there. Nope, you know, we, not at all. We live near the beach. And so we go to the beach and, and we like to go for little drives. And we used to love going out to eat together. That can be a little hard now with the virus and my immuno situation, but he's tried to understand and he's the only man I could ever love. And he has just been wonderful on the PEA thing. I, it kind of caught fire. Because once people learned that those were my initials, then other people in Florida started putting PEA up whenever they got a high score. And then people in other countries were doing it. People oh. in England, people in Australia, oh they were goodness. putting it up and they would send me screenshots like, yeah, I just got the high score on this game right here. I got the all-time high score here. Take a look. And then I would be watching them on a stream and they would get a, a big score and they'd see I was there and they go, okay, well, we're going to put PA for that and everything. And there was a guy, his name is Carlos, who lives in, in Miami and he goes to this one arcade all the time and he found a particular machine he likes and he says, uh, and his name's all over it. And he says, forget it. He started putting my initials all over it and it took him about two months, but it was wall to wall, PEA, the whole thing. Aww. And he shared that with me. He's like, I finally did it. And the scores he had to put up were astronomical. And then he had to do them in a certain order so that he wouldn't knock himself off, which yeah. he did a couple of times. And <laughs> it was just stunning what people were doing for me, just spontaneously. I never went, I never went and asked anybody to do anything for me. And I think that if you have cancer out there, the last thing you want is to be pitied. And the last thing you want is to be treated differently because you have the disease. You want people to see you still for you 
the you that you are inside. And I, I think people seeing that and just doing something out of honor as opposed to out of obligation, that was really the stunning part. That people were doing things because they wanted to do them, not because yeah. I said it would be really nice if somebody did this. You find out who your friends really are. Oh, yeah. I think I finally found out. And that's one reason, another reason to stick around is because you really learn who your friends are. And just to clarify for anyone watching or listening, Norma Jennings is your pseudonym, correct? Right. It's not my real name. And that goes back to my husband and I were watching Twin Peaks on DVD. And he once said, this was years ago. He says, you know, you look like the woman that runs the double R diner. What's that character's name again? It's Norma (laughs) Jennings. So when I was in a tournament and I got a high score on a game and they said, well, we have to write your name down. And I said, well, is this going to go on the internet? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I don't need any stalkers. This is before I had cancer or anything like that. I said, just put down Norma Jennings. I didn't think anything <laughs> of it. I thought stuck. to myself, oh, yeah, just write that down. And of course, it's stuck because like once they put your name in, then it's like, mm-hmm. that's your name, right? You know, so so it's like, okay, so I'm Norma to some people and I'm, I'm Michelle to other people and I'm Norma Michelle to some people. <laughs> I Good love enough, it. You know? It's good enough for me. What is one thing you wish you'd known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? You're going to be tired a lot. You're going to wake up and you're going to have a cup of coffee and you're going to think to yourself, I'm doing all right. It's 930. It's 10 o'clock. My energy level is rising. I'm going to do all right. By 1130, you're feeling like you want to take a nap. And you say to yourself, what happened? All I did was sit on the couch here. I watched a little TV and now I don't feel like I can get up. Or, boy, I really feel like I could go to sleep now. And I slept the whole night. I tell people all the time, my, my disease is a mystery even to me. I have no idea what's going to happen on any given day. And people are asking me to do things for them. Hey, would you like to come and do this for this tournament? Or, you know, we could get together and do this or that. And I always say yes. And everything is a contingent yes. Like, you know, sure. or I just simply say no. And it's not like I don't want to do it or I don't think I might be able to do it. But you can't count on me to do anything anymore. You just don't know what's going to happen to me. I might end up in the hospital. Yeah. I might, I might end up too sick. I might end up with internal bleeding. I might have a negative reaction to some medication I've been taking for six months. All of a sudden now it doesn't work the same way, or you just don't know what's going to happen to me. I'm a complete mystery. And every morning that I wake up, one thing in the back of my mind always is what unusual cancer related thing is going to happen to me today. And will I be able to deal with it? And I think that is something that every cancer patient deals with. You just are like, I'm ready for the one thing. And I just hope it's going to be that I'm going to be a little more tired than usual because that you can deal with something like, gee, I really can't feel my hands or I just did a load of warm laundry and I can't touch anything now. And tingling in my hands is lasting longer than I thought or Maybe if you have lung cancer, gee, I'm really out of breath today, much more than usual. Is this permanent? Is the first thing that I always end up thinking, is this it? And it's not it. Usually your disease just will come and go and it will do stuff to you. And then it will leave you alone for a while. And then it will come back and do something else to you. But most of the time you will be able to ride a a sort of a medium plane, which nobody told me any of this. My sister had breast cancer. She was only at stage zero, but she opted for a bilateral mastectomy. And then she had breast reconstruction, which went okay. And she's currently cancer-free. Her situation was very different. Yeah, as soon course. as they spotted something, she didn't metastasize. So when you metastasize, that's another weird thing. 
when something doesn't happen, you wonder if it's a new thing that's happening to you. And I try not to read too much about my own condition because I don't want to impute symptoms on myself. I'd almost rather be surprised by this condition. But I do a lot of reading about other people's conditions. And I, share, <laughs> I share them on my pinball stream. I'm looking at them, at, constantly researching everybody else's cancers, celebrities and everything like that. But sometimes I choose to remain a little blissfully ignorant about my own. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Yeah, I'd like to do more than one thing. I know everybody says that, but you get (laughs) one. So what's at the top of the list? I really think it comes down to we have to stop penalizing the patients for seeking help from many different places as early as they can. So I mentioned that I went to a family doctor early on. I was between jobs at the time and I was on sort of a personal health insurance plan. I, I started my new job literally the following week. But because my family doctor wrote in there that I was having indigestion, eventually long-term disability traced, which on a different plan, traced all the way back to that. And they said that I had a pre-existing condition when I started at my company. And I'm talking 10 days before, 10 days. They said I had a pre-existing condition for 10 days. And I said, well, I got news for you. Nobody knew what the heck I had. They thought I just had curd. They thought I just had indigestion. Nobody suspected that I had esophageal cancer and even another thousand to one on top of that, that I was already stage four. But of course, me in my life, I've hit the the million to one shot so many times, you know, I should, I should be rich. I should be playing Powerball. I I hit it so many times. So, and this time it it resulted in a huge financial hit to Mm. us because I couldn't go on long-term disability. I was forced to resign my job and I ended up on social security disability, which was substantially less. And the only reason I got that is because I was terminal. So if I wasn't terminally ill, I wouldn't have even really been able to get that. So so the fact that I'm able to continue has been a benefit. There was a safety net there. The problem is I had to hit a couple of awnings in the side of a couple of buildings before I fell into that safety net. And patients should not be put in the position where they're forced to delay care in the name of making sure that they don't run afoul of an insurance company. That is not what insurance is about. Insurance is about ensuring that you remain healthy. On a much smaller level, it reminds me years ago, I'm really susceptible to bronchitis, which can often turn into pneumonia. Mm. And this one particular time I actually needed an inhaler and it was, was like a much bigger deal than usual. And my physician bless her at the time, didn't write any of that into my medical chart. She Mm. said, if I write this in, they're going to think you have asthma and this will follow you for the rest of your life. She was able to get the prescription approved, but she didn't put anything in my medical records about it Mm. because she was thinking ahead and didn't want this to be a pre-existing condition in the future. I'm not going to say that all physicians are evil. You should trust your doctors. I mean, I, again, I'm I'm all about early detection and I'm constantly, constantly beating the drum for that. Oh, well, now Norma says that because she went for early detection and she sought help for her illness that she got screwed in the end. No, that was just an unfortunate coincidence. And the, and the fact that a bureaucracy worked itself against me. But I'll tell you this, if I hadn't started the ball rolling when I did, would I even have been here? I, yeah. When I was on short-term disability, I'm pretty certain, which was 
around the late summer, around this time of year, last year, I can tell you that I think my doctors were not convinced I was going to live to the end of my short-term disability. I, and I'm convinced that I wasn't going to live to the end of it either. You can't ignore your health because for bureaucracy, I just want to make sure the message is right. I, but I'll tell you, I would do the whole thing over again, the fact that I'm here right now, because I did get the healthcare I needed. I ended up on COBRA. I got extended on that and I have the social security disability. And we saved money for so many years because both my husband and I always thought to ourselves, what if something really bad happens to one of us and something really bad did. So we were ready. We've always been ready. Mm -hmm. And so I don't feel so bad about it, but it was something about healthcare. I definitely changed. Thank you so much for that. Are you ready to lighten things up with the Thriver rapid fire questions? Sure. Why not? (laughs) I think I know the answer to the first one, but beach, desert, or mountains? Of course, I live near the beach, but I will tell you that one thing I've always told my husband is that I'd love to see the desert before I go. I would love to see the desert, like the real desert, like you see on television with the with the horses and the lassos and the cactuses. (laughs) I'd like to see that someday. I've never, never seen that. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? I would say Beach Boys only because of Beach, but I've listened to all of them and (laughs) I'm old enough to remember when they had new songs. So, you know, that that says a lot. (laughs) What is one word that best describes you? So my husband always says, I think you're very courageous, he says to me. And I, I think to myself, so I answer him sometimes I go, no, I'm just, I'm not courageous. I'm just stupid. Like, you know, I just, I just don't take no for an answer sometimes. So I guess the answer for me would be determined. So I guess it depends on who you ask. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Yeah, these questions were really tough because I don't really like to think in those terms, but I've had kind of a, kind of a vision. I don't know. I have a very creative mind. Hopefully it would be a song that I like, you know, so I've, I have this vision that, Somehow or another, I end up on a gurney somewhere and there's like three or four nurses and staff over top of me, you know, and I've watched so much television. So I think of everything from a television perspective. So of course we have, you know, Norma point of view looking up <laughs> three or four nurses and they're running around scrambling like crazy and they're shouting things at each other. Like you see on TV, like pressure's dropping 75 over 45, 70 over 43. We may need to intubate the oxygen's ready and things like that. And then, of course, in the background, there's some crappy rap song playing that I hated (laughs) 10 years ago. And I'll be thinking to myself in the middle of all of this, this is what I'm signing off with. It figures. That's what I think. I'm going to have to listen to like Baby Got Back or something, you know? (laughs) And that was a better one. So, Oh, yes, I know. I just pulled a name out of the air. I know. (laughs) How about the last meal? People sometimes think that cancer is a prison. And I think for some people listening out there, it may be a prison for them right now. And they may be thinking that, what is my last meal going to be like? And I recognize that some people are not in the position I'm in. And you may be thinking that, and you may be thinking, all I'm going to have here is this terrible hospital food, or I'm in hospice. And all I'm going to have is, I would love to be able to remember having a hamburger or pizza or spaghetti things like that, that I've always loved. I would love to be able to have a good memory of something like that as close to the end as I possibly could. And I don't know when that'll be, but it would be nice to always have a memory of something like that. What about the people you want to see? I would want my husband to be there. Definitely. I think he, he is the one person 
in my entire life who has loved me so completely unconditionally and has pretty much accepted everything. He's accepted everything and, you know, has rolled with everything and dealt with everything. And, you know, I had a job once where I would have to go on the road to go do computer things for people. And I'd be away from home for like an entire week at a time. And that would happen probably a good five to 10 times a year. And that was a lot of time for him to really be by himself. And he can occupy himself just fine when he's by himself. He loves to read and he hangs out with his friends sometimes and, you know, loves to watch TV, loves cars and things like that. So he was always able to do something by himself, but there's nobody like him. There's nobody like my husband. It would be nice if my whole family was there, but if only one person had to be there, it would be him. And I know what he'd be yelling. He'd be yelling in that previous scene right there. In my vision, he's yelling, hang in there, sweet pea. I don't Mm. see him because I'm looking straight up. I'm just like, I don't want that to be the case. I want to be engaged with him for as long as I possibly can. So we try to make moments count now in particular when I'm doing all right. Aside from Cancer You, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And then I also want you to tell people how to get in touch with you. I mentioned cancer.org before, American Cancer Society. I can tell you that no matter what type of cancer you have, or you think you might have cancer, or you're wondering what kind of screening there is or something, they got all that stuff right there. And that website can be a little difficult to follow sometimes, a little difficult getting around. They change navigation on you sometimes, but the information is there. Just keep clicking and explore. I think that's another thing you're going to want to do is explore. I learned the common risk factors, obesity, smoking, being exposed to hazardous chemicals, family history. If you don't know your family history, like I really didn't pay attention to mine. Even when my sister got cancer, I said to myself, well, she got cancer. She always had some health problems. Not me. I'm doing great. I don't really drink. I've never done illegal drugs. I'm not obese. I'm great. I never smoked a day in my life. Cancer can get anybody. Pay attention to what your family history is. And how oh, can and people get in touch with get you? In touch with me. So if you are on Twitch, so Twitch is at twitch.tv and there's a Twitch app. Of course, it's also a website, twitch, www.twitch.tv. If you go there, you'll, you'll be able to search for a particular streamer. The moniker for my streamer is pinball and cancer, all one word, pinball and cancer, all one word. If you don't want to go that route initially and you just want to find me elsewhere, you can write to pinballandcancer@gmail.com. You can always write to me there, or you can check me out on Facebook at Norma Jennings Pinball. And I answer anything sent to me. So don't be afraid to write. I'll, I'll get back to you very quickly. Thank you, Andrea, for this opportunity to uh, talk with you and to talk about these really important things. Well, Norma, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.